Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, Just a quick reminder that for the month of June, I am opening up my Sanity Saver sessions to all of you guys. So if you have ever thought, oh my God, I just need like an hour of Kate's time. I just need to run this stuff by her. Um, You know, let me make a quick plan for how to have the conversation, Um, how to tell my kids, how do I navigate this sort of co-parenting landscape? By the way, I um, spent the last few weeks becoming certified with my dear friend, Christina McGee through the Mostyn Guthrie Academy as a co-parenting specialist. So I'm now certified as a co-parenting specialist. I have a lot more to say about that uh, in the coming weeks. But for now, if you have questions about co-parenting, any of those things, anything, if you're like, oh, fuck, I just want to talk to Kate, Sanity Saver sessions are now available to you just for the month of June, though. That's it. And then they go bye-bye because um, I'm hunkering down and finishing my book for the rest of the summer. So today's show, we are talking today about the Facebook narcissist. I have with me an amazing guest, Lena Derhali. She's a licensed and Imago certified psychotherapist in private practice. She's the author of the Amazon true crime and criminology bestseller, My Daddy is a Hero, How Chris Watts Went from Family Man to Family Killer, uh, and the forthcoming pop psychology book, The Facebook Narcissist, How to Identify and Protect Yourself and Your Loved Ones from Social Media Narcissism. She was also uh, formerly a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the George Washington School of Medicine, where she mentored medical students. So listen, she is coming back on the podcast to talk about the Chris Watts case uh, and all of that. But today we're talking about her newer book, The Facebook Narcissist, and how to identify and protect yourself and your loved ones from social media narcissism. This is more than just about Facebook and social media, but we do talk a lot about how Facebook and and social media has really given narcissism um, a platform and also created narcissism where perhaps there would not otherwise have been. So um, there is just a there is there's a lot to unpack here. It's really fascinating conversation. So without further ado, here is my conversation, my first conversation with Lena Derhali. Lena, thank you so much for coming on. And um, just a spoiler for everybody: this is going to be part, this is going to be one of two episodes that we're going to do. And, but this first one is about your new book, 
about social media and narcissism. And it's called The Facebook Narcissist yes. <laughs> for obvious <laughs> reasons. So let's just dive into that. So first of all, let's like, let's start with, and I think it's one of your first chapters, which is narcissism defined. Why is this such a huge topic right now? Why is it, is everybody a narcissist? Well, that's a great question to kick this off. Um, you know, I wanted to define narcissism because it is such a buzzword right now where people sort of throw it around and it's everywhere you look, you know, every article, everything. Are you a narcissist? Are you dating a narcissist? Is your mother a narcissist? You know, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And just being in, you know, the general population and doing what I do, which is specializing in narcissism in my practice, I've noticed that people don't understand the scope of narcissism and how many in how many different ways it manifests. And so how I uh, decided to define narcissism was the way Craig, Dr. Craig Malkin, he's a Harvard psychologist, and he has a great book called Rethinking Narcissism. And he defines narcissism what, as what he calls triple E, which stands for entitlement, exploitation, and lack of empathy. And I think, you know, most people look at narcissism and they, they think about the grandiosity or the arrogance or somebody who really commands attention. And while that can be part of narcissism, in order to be a narcissist, you have to have that real disregard and callousness for others, you know, that high entitlement, exploit, exploiting others as a pattern mm-hmm. and low empathy. Um, and just one other thing, I think it's important to note that I also like to define narcissism on a spectrum, which is also how Dr. Malkin does as well. And so obviously if you're looking at it as a scale from about one to 10 and you're looking at eight to 10 as being really high, I think that's where you get the really dangerous, really cruel, abusive people But then you can interact with people in your regular life who have some of these traits, but may not qualify as a full-blown narcissist. But I still think it's important to know Mm -hmm. how to define that and how Mm -hmm. to protect yourself from that or how to interact with those people. So that's my like platform speech for you. But if you want, we can also go into how I define the subtypes of narcissism in my book. Yes, I do want to get into that for sure. Um, I want to actually first back up a little bit and I want to ask you to to expand on the idea of these people being exploitive. What does that mean? They take advantage of other people. So what that might look like is, you know, you have somebody who owns a company and they're constantly making their employees work overtime without paying them for that overtime. Uh, I worked for a company once that where I was entitled to a lunch break and they wouldn't even give me a real lunch break or Mm -hmm. even give me bathroom breaks. I actually had to... to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. And I was 25 years old at the time. This is New York city (laughs) entertainment industry, but you know, you're looking at things like that and it's, you know, it's a real disregard for other people. And so it's using people and taking advantage of them and knowing that you're doing it too. And again, I like to see that, you know, I like to say with narcissists, that's a pattern. So, you know, if someone does something like that once, okay, that's not a great sign, but you know, you really want to look for that pattern of someone who's doing that pretty Uh regularly. Right. And in relationships, this could manifest as what, like, how does that, how does that look in a relationship? Like how could people identify that in their relationship? Yeah. You could look at, you know, forms of coercive control and, you know, financial control. It may be a partner, you know, 
controlling the finances or saying, you know, you can, I'm going to give you an allowance. You can get $10 a week, you know, <laughs> or something like that. Right. And, you know, just again, taking advantage of that person in some way and treating them as they're undervalued, you know, and mm. not, not an equal. Right. Yes. And there's something I think in there that I'm is to do with the power and control wheel, that it is about power and control over, over just about anything else. Oh yeah. And narcissistic people need to be in control and need power and they thrive off of that. And they look for ways all the time where they can assert control or have power over others. It's it's a real high for them. There, then there are these subtypes. Um, so let's get into some of those. So in my book, I, I define four of them and they're not my personal definitions, but they're, you know, from other, uh, researchers and psychologists. And the first is malignant narcissism, which I think your listeners will probably be most familiar with. And that is sort of the dark triad, which is, you know, a mix of almost like psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Again, I think you're kind of, when you're looking at that, you may see that in a lot of these world leaders who are really, uh, again, they love that power and they're sadistic. Putin currently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For example, that would be the prime example. example. Yes. That would be the prime example right now of what that would look like. And of course, you know, you don't have to have that much notoriety um, to to have that, but they're really dangerous people. They're very cruel people. They inflict a lot of harm on people. And I think that's really that element of sadism, you know, enjoying inflicting harm on people really can come into the malignant narcissism. So that's almost taking it like narcissism 2.0, extreme, extreme. Right. And And that's really rare. Right. Like you have to like, and it's because I think it's really important to say that like, not like, even if you're in an abusive relationship with a narcissist, they're not necessarily this Machiavellian. Like this is like, this is like true evil that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have, I would say, you know, close to zero empathy, Mm -hmm. no concern. Like those are people who probably murder but some people yes. would also argue that somebody like Bernie Madoff was a malignant narcissist. And uh-huh, I talk about uh-huh. exploitation, right? So yes, right. It wasn't <laughs> that he, right. Mm-hmm. It's not that he physically hurt people or murdered people, but the callousness that he displayed and the exploitation and the entitlement and low empathy of all the people that he, he took money from um, and, and played that role as this charming, you know, he was the master manipulator for, for many, many years. So you don't have to be physically aggressive. There can uh, be other ways that people would say the malignant narcissism would manifest. And you're Mm -hmm. right. I think Mm -hmm. that thankfully that's quite rare. Um, And then I moved to covert or vulnerable narcissism. People use that interchangeably where this is not the grandiose narcissist. So narcissistic personality disorder, NPD in the DSM, which is this, I call it the psychology Bible. It's got all, you know, the diagnoses listed. That one is really about grandiosity and arrogance and pompousness and commanding the attention from other people. It's big, it's boisterous energy. Now, covert and vulnerable narcissism, you really want to get back to that triple E because it's not about how they're outward in the world. It's how they think about themselves and how they are behind closed doors. And so a covert or vulnerable narcissist may harbor secret fantasies about being recognized as important or powerful. But they may be your nice next door neighbor mowing the lawn who's not outwardly seeking any type of power, control, notoriety. And covert and vulnerable narcissists, you really find them in a lot of romantic relationships because 
on the outside to the outside world, they seem actually like really nice people. You know, like I said, it could be your, your nice neighbor. You can't identify them as well, but behind closed doors, they're doing that whole Jekyll and Hyde thing, switching back and forth between the cruel, abusive, gaslighting personality. And then <laughs> the next day they're pretending nothing happened and they're telling you how great you are. And so uh, that type of thing that happens behind closed doors, a lot of people would be shocked if they heard their friend confide in them. Hey, you know, I think that my husband or my partner or whatever is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is narcissistic, but oh, but he's so humble, you know, but it's really about the triple E. It's really interesting the way that you also call it vulnerable. I hadn't actually heard that before. I've heard of covert all the time, right? And but their use of vulnerability to manipulate and control. It is that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And it's right, it's so specific in my yes. experience. Like it's this very specific, but I just, but no, I I I'm just trying to tell you how I feel. Ugh. Yeah, they could you could use Insidious. that and weaponize that, but they're yep. also super thin-skinned and fragile. And I think yes. that's where the vulnerable comes from is when we're looking at narcissistic rage, which is when a narcissistic person perceives something as an insult to them, mm-hmm. they will rage at you. Uh-huh. And rage doesn't always again have to be this explosive anger. Rage can be like I'm going to shut down and give you the complete silent treatment for weeks and look at you with contempt and make you feel like the worst person in the world. So narcissistic rage can look like that as well. And so a covert narcissist, really, I think they take everything like perceived criticism, walking on eggshells, their ego is so fragile, you know, and so they get angry quickly. And so I think that's part of the vulnerable profile. Yeah. You're describing my ex to a T. Yeah. And and, and grandiose narcissists also have narcissistic rage. But yeah, the the thing about the covert narcissist, they're really kind of snippy and you're walking on eggshells around them and their ego seems really fragile and you never know how you're going to offend them. That could be a clue. One of many clues that could point to that being the case is them as a vulnerable covert. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there, okay. So are there any other subtypes? There's two There's more. Two more. Okay. And then I go communal narcissism to me is the most fascinating. And, um, I learned about communal narcissism when I was researching for my book that we'll talk about next time about yes. Chris Watts, mm-hmm. the man who killed his family in Colorado. And the reason I got so interested and I was blown away when I heard about communal narcissism is because the profile of the communal narcissist is the opposite of your grandiose narcissist. And communal meaning they seek narcissistic supply, which is attention and praise. Again, something that all narcissists need and kind of live by, you know, that's, that's how they fuel themselves. They need Mm -hmm. that attention praise. Communal narcissists don't use selfish means to get attention and praise. In fact, they figured out, oh, if I'm this good charitable person, people will praise me for how great I am and how kind I am. So you might see these people as pastors at churches or rabbis or, you know, religious leaders. You may see them as the PTA presidents. Mm-hmm. You may see them even as, you know, somebody who's just, again, on social media, since my book is about how yeah, these things manifest on that. social yeah, media. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. Hey, I just made these great charitable donations. And then people are, you know, responding to them like, Oh, you're such a kind person. And so their whole persona is just about being trustworthy and likable and a do-gooder. I call it the do-gooder narcissist. But Mm -hmm. they could also be, have those three entities, you know, the low empathy, exploitation, entitlement, and they like the attention. And it's all about them. It's not actually about 
enjoying doing good for others. They're doing it solely for the purpose of the attention that it's going to bring them, the positive attention. And, uh, you know, I had a, a woman write to me once and after she read my Chris Watts book and she said, you know, I think my ex was a communal narcissist. He was a missionary and he did all these great things, but behind the scenes, he was, he was like a child abuser and molesting children, you know, like mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm, there can mm-hmm. be this really, really dark side to somebody who seemingly is doing all this good in the world, which yeah. I think is so important for us to all have this knowledge just because somebody does good does not mean they are good. Oh, so good. It's, and it, this is sort of like the cult leader profile too, yes. right? Like, yes. Like and, Keith Ranieri from oh. the Nexium cult. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, you know, Jim Jones, right. Because he started out actually doing some really great work in San Francisco mm-hmm. in right in the, in his early days. Right. Right. And he was like the most, in, the first, like really inclusive church, like all of this stuff. And then it just Fucking spiral from there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, all right. So let's and one more. Oh, one more. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. And this was one too, that was new to this book. And this is something I recently discovered as well. It's called collective narcissism. And I'm really excited about this one because I was actually able to interview the woman who developed the collective narcissism inventory scale, which is sort of the checklist of what qualifies someone to be these sort of subtypes of narcissism. And she's in my book and she's done a bulk of the research and collective narcissism is what they're tying to sort of populism and authoritarianism and racism and nationalism. It's narcissism around your group instead of yourself as an individual. So it's the belief that my group is superior and entitled to special treatment. And I'm my narcissistic rage is on behalf of the group. And it can be any group. It could be your book club, for example, which is yeah. Probably not, you know, but right. something the as small best as book that. club in the world. Right, <laughs> right. But yeah, but right. And that's fine. Right. But then we're right. talking about, but, but when we're talking about, as you said, like authoritarianism, racism, populism, yeah. nationalism, mm-hmm. all of this, like we are in trouble and we are, we're there. Yeah. A- <laughs> and if you think about it, it makes sense. Cause again, we're looking at entitlement, exploitation, lack of empathy. And again, in my, my book, there's a lot of great research out there tying racism to narcissism, which makes sense. Because if you believe you're better than someone else by your skin color, you know, then yes, that's low empathy. That's entitlement. You, you will exploit other people who are not like you. And so I think at the end of the day, all the worst things that we see in the world are connected to these various subtypes of narcissism, but we don't really have a clue that it manifests in all these different ways. So part of, you know, what I like to do is I really like to educate people there's so many ways this can manifest. And it, yeah. if you feel like you're gaslighting yourself, like the communal, the communal narcissist, oh, but this person's so nice. I like people to know, well, maybe they are, but you're not crazy. Like they can right. still be a narcissist. So. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I wonder, I have a theory about this and I don't know if this is, has any scientific research backing at all. And I would love for somebody else to do the research. <laughs> It's because I'm out of time. In my mind, I feel like we have a bigger problem in this of, about all of this in the U.S. than almost anywhere else. Um, I know that we have the highest rates of serial killers um, per capita than any nation in the world. It feels to me like this is on that same scale. Like we, there's something in our 
culture and our cultural drinking water <laughs> that is creating this. Is that, do you, do you think that that's supported? I agree, especially because I think America, especially as we've seen in the pandemic is very much about individualism and that there's a lot of lack Mm -hmm. of empathy when, you know, individualism, like we're not responsible for each other instead of looking at us as being in a community. And I think those values of not taking care of other people and not taking care of our people are much more prominent in America than other countries. You know, the fact that people are dying because they can't afford insulin is insane. Insanity. It's insane. People should right. be able, everybody should be able mm-hmm. to have access to medicine. You know, there shouldn't be such vast income inequality, which I guess could be a whole other podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think again, because America is so focused on individualism and, you know, I don't have to take care of you. You're responsible for yourself. I think that breeds a culture of narcissism. Absolutely. I so, I so completely agree. And yeah, we did see it so horrifically during the pandemic. It was so, and, you know, even though, you know, we had just lived through the Trump years and like we, there, we were seeing a lot of this anyway, once the pandemic hit and it was, it sort of came to a head in a way that was so shocking to me. Like, I still like, like I deal with this every day. Like this is my work as well. And, you know, I'm in the trenches with this all the time and I'm still always surprised. <laughs> and I'm always like, what? <laughs> people yep. don't think people don't feel like we should all be vaccinated because it helps everybody. <laughs> like what? And it's, it, it, it fast. It like never ceases to amaze me. I think actually before, even before vaccines, there was some research that came out that was, uh, correlating psychopaths with anti-maskers, not saying every anti-masker is a psychopath, but there was a strong correlation between people who were very defiant about wearing a mask in a grocery store for 15 minutes and making such a big deal about it mm-hmm. as having some traits of psychopathy, which again, is that this lack of, I don't no, care. No empathy. I, like they, yeah, yeah. Right. They just, there is not, there is no, empathy. I, I remember an incident actually, because where I live in DC, it's, you know, we've had stronger mask mandates than a lot mm-hmm. of other places. And I was actually in Maryland in a town over And this was during the mandates and I was at Whole Foods and there was a woman, you know, talking back to an employee and yelling at him. He asked her to put her mask on and she decided to fight back, you know, and really give him a hard time. And I actually stepped in at at Whole Foods Foods. and I stepped in at that point and I was, you know, I said, ma'am, respectfully, you know, while you may not believe the mask rule is legit. I said, you're in somebody else's place of business and this is their rule. So while you're in their place of business, you respect their rule. And it's sort of, that's entitlement. Okay. And that's how mm-hmm. I explain it Absolutely. to my kids. Yep. yep. When you go to somebody else's house and they ask you to take off your shoes, you may not think that rule is a good rule, but you are a guest in someone's house. You're mm-hmm. not entitled to say, mm-hmm. I'm not going to wear my shoes in your house. And so mm-hmm. I think that's, that's another way I look at entitlement. Yep. And again, entitlement is a big part of the narcissistic profile. Okay. So let's talk about social media and let's talk about how this, it manifests, it shows up and, or is exacerbated by, is created by like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Exactly. And a lot of, a lot of social scientists are still trying to figure this out. I think the general consensus, and there's really mixed evidence right now, but the general consensus is narcissists are drawn to social media. It's kind of a playground for them. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I explore very different ways and what this looks like, whether it's catfishing women on apps or Facebook, you know, or things like that. There's just, 
or, or getting attention um, and validation, it's a great place for narcissistic supply or using something like Facebook or Instagram as a tool to make somebody else feel bad by, you know, here's a party we were at. We know this person's going to see it. You know, there's different ways that they use social media yeah. uh, for their agenda. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I thought that that was really important to show in the book is that, you know, social media is a place where you're going to encounter narcissism. How do you protect yourself from that? But mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. wanted to look at does social media cause more narcissism or exacerbate it or bring it out? Yeah. And one of, there was one interesting study where they looked at MySpace. Remember MySpace back in the day, this pre Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, you know, for those who don't know, it's just a, a platform. It was kind of the pre Facebook where you had a profile about yourself and people could look at it. There was one study shown that the more time uh, people spent on MySpace, it was like 15 minutes or extra or something, the higher they scored on the inventory of narcissism. So I thought that was really interesting that there was actually a study saying that people actually did score higher narcissism after spending more time on the platform. So that was one thing. But there was also a woman I read about in my influencer chapter who talked about how becoming an influencer was mining the depths of her narcissism. I use that exactly, her quote. And I just thought that was really profound as someone who was becoming an influencer and noticing herself becoming more vapid, vain, narcissistic, and not liking that. And so then she chose to remove herself from that. And so that's the piece that I actually find really interesting is like, what is this mining and curating, you know, uh, our vanity and putting out this image to the world, but the people who have to do it constantly, right? Like, what is that? They become more self-involved because it's all about them and their job is all about them. So inevitably, you know, I talked to behavioral psychologists about that. Yes. Like the more you do something, the more you believe it, behavior is important. The more Mm -hmm. repeated behavior happens, you know, the more you become that in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think we don't have so much evidence yet to say that social media, like definitively can cause narcissism, but I think there's some compelling stuff out there. So it's interesting, right? Because this woman who said the influencer who said that it was mining the depths of her narcissism, the fact that she was able to be objective about that and then make a change about it indicates that she's not actually a narcissist, right? No, not at all. (laughs) Right. So, and I I had a similar experience um, that I'll share briefly, which is that I you know, throughout the 2016 election and the and the sort of the the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2015, and like when things were like really getting to a head, and then into the election and stuff like that, um, I was writing a lot on social media about all of this stuff, and then throughout the Trump years, and I was very vocal, and I became someone that people listened to. Right, my voice became. So, you know, somewhat, I don't know, you know, influencing, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, in that sphere. And I got to a point and it was, I think it was after the 2020 election where we were all just so tired. (laughs) I think it was just like, okay, now I can breathe for a minute. I sort of stopped posting the way that I had been. And, and, and with this sort of like distance, I would go in and be like, I should probably say something about, and then I was like, why? Why? Like, who cares? Why is my voice? Like, why does my voice matter? Why do I think my voice matters? Like, 
who fucking cares? Right? <laughs> who cares what I have to say? There are a million people who have like degrees in this. Like, if you want to know what's going on politically, like read Heather Cox Richardson. What do I like? <laughs> why do I matter? And I just sort of got to that point where I was like, I am. And it was a it was an about face. Like it was a very sudden about face where I was like, I'm done. I'm so done yeah. with this. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And then I was even going to write something about like, Hey guys, I'm stepping away because I noticed this thing and like write a whole missive about that. And I was like, but again, who cares? <laughs> like, like yeah. how ironic would it be to write about that? Like, forget it. And I just stepped away. And I, you know, and what was interesting is that not a single person who followed me, the like 4,000 friends that I have, whatever, nobody messaged me to be like, hey, haven't seen you post for a while. Are you okay? <laughs> like, because literally, Nobody fucking cared. <laughs> well, I love, I love, I love that you said that because it's such a great example though. Of like, again, but first I want to say you do matter and your voice does matter. And I think, you know, we have to find that balance yes. of being like, yeah, I matter. My voice matters. However, you, yeah. you kept yourself in check mm-hmm. by being like, mm-hmm. I'm not the most important voice in the world. And like, I don't have to comment on everything. And right. And my, and my voice matters on like, my business page and my yeah. Instagram page and my TikTok videos. Like I, I completely own an honor where my voice matters in that. But yeah. Like, yeah. It's like commentary, like whatever. Yeah. It was <laughs> like right. kind of, there was a joke going around when all, you know, a horrible situation when the Afghanis were fleeing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that whole thing. And, yeah. you know, it's also, we're still in the pandemic at that, you know, and yeah. um, someone was like, I love how everybody online are now geopoliticists. And like epidemiologists, you know, because it's like people who don't have, who don't have authority in foreign policy or disease or control or, you know, virology or whatever. It's like, everybody is the expert. Exactly. Or also the idea of social media, I think seduces everybody to think that like they, they can have a voice in everything. Like you have to comment on everything. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, maybe, you know, for example, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, of course, like you, Kate, could comment on that. I, this is a, this I, is a yes. trial where yes. they're actually talking about personality disorders um, coming into it. But I mean, not everybody has to make a comment about Will Smith, Chris Rock, and Amber Heard and Johnny Depp and Afghanistan and Ukraine. You know, all exactly. of these things happening um, is that, yeah, sometimes you have to step back and be like, hey, I don't have to comment. And now a word from our sponsor, the Divorce Survival Program. Now that you know that divorce is on the horizon, you need to get up to speed on how all of this works. Stat. You probably have a million and one questions swirling through your head from how and when do we tell the kids to will my ex and I ever get along again and just about everything in between. You've got legal questions, you've got financial questions, and you've got a whole host of questions about your kids. And that doesn't even touch how you'll start your life over again. Lucky for you, I have the answers to all of your questions. As one of the pioneers of the divorce coaching industry, I've been helping women navigate the divorce process for the last decade. And now, for the first time ever, all of my divorce wisdom is available in one online program. The Divorce Survival Program will help you process the emotional fallout of your divorce so you don't go into mediation bitter or resentful. It'll help you understand the difference between litigation, mediation, collaborative divorce, and identify which is right for you. 
It'll help you tell your husband you want a divorce in a way that doesn't keep you stuck in a circular conversation for the next three months. It'll help you tell your kids you're getting a divorce in a way that won't completely break them. It'll help you understand how your divorce will impact your friends and family and what conversations are appropriate to have with each. It'll help you create appropriate and healthy boundaries with your ex and learn about dating after divorce and how that will affect you, your kids, and yes, even your ex. But most important, the most important thing this program will help you do is protect your children from any unnecessary fallout from an ugly and contentious divorce litigation. And that, my love, is fucking priceless. So sign up today. Go to kateanthony.com slash getting divorced, and don't forget to use the code DSGPOD for $50 off. That's DSGPOD, Divorce Survival Guide Podcast, because that's where you heard it. DSGPOD will give you $50 off. So once again, that's kateanthony.com slash getting divorced. And now back to our episode. So let's talk about this influencer situation. So like, that's an example of an influencer who, who like me, like took a step back and was like, eh, <laughs> this doesn't feel right. Yeah. What about the rest of them? The ones who are still doing it, the ones who, uh, you know, wh- what, what is happening? It, yeah. And this feels like a, a feeding, like a, like a self feeding kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I I have a lot of concerns about influencer culture. And I'm not saying that every influencer or every influencer with a big platform is a narcissist. I'm not saying that at all, but I I take issue with the fact that, you know, what it's doing to also those observers and the people who get so deep into it. Like the woman I talked about who said it was mining the depths of my narcissism and she became obsessed with herself and her image and what she was putting out there. And then, you know, I also talk in the book about the addictive nature of social media. So it's not even blaming people for this. It's like you combine this with this addictive nature and an inherent need for all of us to have validation. As a therapist, my my work, especially with couples, it's all about validation. It's okay to want and need validation. We're human beings. We need to be appreciated, validated. And we we need to feel unconditionally loved by the people in our lives. And so I don't want people to think like, oh, validation is bad, but what social media does is it makes you addicted to it and the mm-hmm. likes. And then mm-hmm. the more you get, the more you want. And it almost becomes like a drug. And so with this influencer culture, I was also concerned about people who were observing it and seeing, because let's face it, a lot of these influencers who are really successful are really skinny. They're, they filter all their images. They have picture-perfect lives. Some of these mommy bloggers, they talk about how they're, they're trying to normalize things, but at the same time, they have a full face of makeup and the, you know, color coordinated outfits. And, you know, even if you're conscious of this stuff, it still even subconsciously can make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a conversation with uh, a good friend a couple of weeks ago, and she's really not a social media person, but she's on LinkedIn and she's very successful in her career. And she's like, you know, I'm a self-aware person. I like myself, but I go on LinkedIn. And I leave feeling bad about myself because even though she's aware of, of this stuff, it still makes her feel bad when it's like, so-and-so just got this award, you know, and so-and-so yeah. is doing all this. And so I'm also interested in how looking at people who, you know, seemingly have these great lives and perfection, whether it's career or family or beauty or looking good in a bikini, 
like what that's doing to all of us who are watching it and mm-hmm. how the, the lengths will go to, to measure up, which I also tie into celebrity culture is now that we see all these celebrities, like our values have become skewed. It's like yeah. our values are like, Oh, it, you know, you're nothing unless you're on a yacht or you're at the Met Gala or, you know, you, you have Botox or fillers. And a lot of the experts I uh, talked to for this book have said, there's a lot of research showing how our values are changing as generations go on. And that girls used to write in their diaries. Uh, a, a great woman I interviewed for my book, her name's Anne Mann. She wrote a book called the life of I, which is about narcissism. Hmm. And she told me that, um, you know, back, back in the day, um, young girls would write in their diaries about improving themselves as a person and character and things like that. And now as you look at girls' diaries throughout the years, they're sort of like, oh, I wish my lips were bigger or my boobs were bigger or something like that. And just, we have to look at social media as one of the catalysts of that, if not one of the biggest catalysts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think people who are doing this work, like being so public online, especially through their image, I think they have a responsibility over that. And what I really liked is um, Norway actually in July of 2021 passed a law Hmm. where they said influencers uh, now have to uh, label their photos when they've altered it in any way. So, you know, in in the US, influencers now have to label when they're doing an ad. So you'll see hashtag ad or paid partnership with at the Uh top. Uh In Norway, if you filter, or you Photoshop, uh, you have to label that. And they said the reason they did that was because the mental health crisis in girls, because of what they're seeing on social media has gotten so extreme that this is one of the ways they're doing to combat all of that. So I think that speaks volumes. I mean, it's like, God, it feels like such a band-aid, right? Like, like, Mm -hmm. okay, great. Now we label it, but we're not, we're not going to stop it. I mean, not that we can, you know, have like government <laughs> interference to mandate these things, but like, but really, right. Like mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, isn't going to do a goddamn thing about this because. Well, yeah. And that's a whole know. other issue, which like, I also talk about these entities like Facebook, uh-huh. big tech, like, uh-huh. that's a narcissistic entity. Everything about yes. social media is exploitive, entitled, low empathy for the people who use it. So again, there's these different levels of yeah, I think as individuals, we have to be responsible about what we put out there and who's looking at it. But also, we also got to blame the big guys at the top who know this is happening and continue to exploit it for money. Um, so, you know, they would, call, you know, they would call that uh, surveillance capitalism is again, using our, our information and all that and mining this data from us um, to exploit us yes. uh, for profit. And then there's also just exploiting us in general, you know, by taking our insecurities and knowing that insecurities also drive engagement. And another study I read was about Twitter, where they were saying most engagement on Twitter is driven through vitriolic uh, tweets. Mm. And Twitter knows that. And so the more vitriolic or divisive a tweet is, the more retweets it gets. And so if you think about that, it's like people, narcissistic people who want attention, once they figure this out, I'm sure you can think of many examples of people who are divisive and vitriolic on purpose on, you know, these yeah. platforms. Yeah. Um, and also the Agnieszka Golek Zavala, who is the collective narcissism researcher, she also says leaders on social media can use this with collectively narcissistic people to mobilize them, you know, 
like a certain like rev them up like, like a certain group. someone yeah <laughs> like a certain yes. someone did yes like our right. group is not being sufficiently recognized you know uh-huh um, uh-huh yes right our our group actually won the election <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly and then stirring people up mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stirring up that collective narcissism and mobilizing them and making their narcissistic rage even bigger and so again like there's so many ways this stuff is so problematic it's so, so, okay. I want to, before we get to like, what do we do? <laughs> Lena, let's talk about our, let's talk about, I want to talk about two things. You have a chapter in the book about relationships and then also on kids. So let's talk about both of these things. Mm-hmm. How is this n- narcissistic? For, I mean, it's one thing to talk about how social media is impacting relationships, but how specifically is this narcissism thread in social media impacting our relationships? Yes. So that chapter, I break it up into three parts, friendship, family, and romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. And friendship, I was intrigued by all the uh, friendships that I saw dissolved because of social media and including myself. I actually, I used to have, you know, 700 friends on Facebook, which I talk about in the book, my own personal journey. And realizing my own stuff that it was bringing out in me that I didn't like, Um, you know, like, hey, why am I posting this to all these 700 people? They're not really my friends. They don't care about seeing my, you know, my baby, for example. Um, So I had my own moments about that. But I also realized that I liked a lot of people better when I wasn't friends with them on social media. And it was skewing my perception of them. And in some cases, it was really narcissistic behavior that I was seeing from them. But I was also interested to see sort of um, as a self-reflection for people, because at the end of every chapter, there's food for thought, just so you're sort of thinking about your own behavior on social media. Again, mm-hmm. not saying you're a narcissist, because I think as Kate, you said in, earlier on, um, if you're asking yourself if you're a narcissist, you're not. <laughs> so right. Like if you're an extreme narcissist, you don't think you are. Right. So, you know, what I looked at the different things that kind of annoyed people about their friends on Facebook that could be correlated with narcissism, like obsessive selfie posting, or, you know, constantly bragging about the vacations, which could have elements of narcissism or, you know, something they call vague booking, which is like posting something really vague in order to get attention. But I also wanted to be careful to say, like, just because these people might do these things and it might annoy people, it's not necessarily narcissism. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of trauma related stuff that brings this out in people. So again, Mm -hmm. people seeking attention on social media doesn't always mean they're a narcissist, but they could have, you know, developmental trauma and they're really starved for that. So I also really want to be clear about how we need to be compassionate towards people. So, you know, when we might get annoyed by something like that, which I you know, admittedly tended to do, um, that it also may be coming from a place of deep pain instead of narcissism. So I also really wanted to define what is and what isn't. So that's friendship. Yes. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. And then family, um, it's really interesting when you put narcissistic family members on social media, uh, you know, people are having to block their own parents sometimes or a sister. And I have a lot of interviews and case studies in this book too. But, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories about a narcissistic mother who may use social media to harass their child, which is like, oh, you look fat in that photo. Like I heard stories oh, of a, a mother taking Jesus. a photo of her kid and texting it. You look fat in this photo. You shouldn't post it or getting hurt and crying. Be like, oh, you don't post enough about me on Mother's Day, you know, narcissistic behaviors like that. So mm. how to recognize and protect yourself and put up boundaries from family members who use social media again 
as a way to kind of torment you or to make mm-hmm. you feel bad about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that was one another. And then relationships, I looked at catfishing, infidelity, um, and, and all of that stuff. Infidelity, by the way, has very high correlations with narcissism and narcissistic personalities. And that has been ramped up with social media and giving right. people more of a playground to, again, use their love bombing to find partners on social media. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It, and then is texting really cheating or like, you know, I'm just messaging this person. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, I'm, nothing happened. I didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Emotional infidelity. Emo- yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's, and it is, it is the entire, I think that is the entitlement piece too. Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. a huge piece of that. Huge. 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 There's a book. Have you, have you seen this or read this, this book called cheating land? No, I haven't even heard of it. The secret confessions of men who stray by anonymous anonymous. (laughs) He didn't want to put his name on the book. And I got, I will confess 35 pages in before I had to stop reading this book because the rage that it induced in me was so extreme part it's because a man wants a wife who helps build a happy close-knit family who helps him to be seen as someone who has a loving unit that is a valued part of their community thus making him look good because that's our fucking job right Uh uh-huh she helps him for this is what men want this is the entitlement right she Mm. helps him forge his legacy when men cheat They want to have another woman in their lives who pumps up their ego, helping them feel attractive, sexy, and powerful. They want to be both the proud patriarch with an unforgettable lady at their side and the sexual animal they felt like when they were younger. These are two distinct areas that cannot be inhabited easily by the same woman. Oh my G O D. Now that was, that's, that's like, you know, six pages before I, I had to put this down. Wow. Misogyny in a book, like just all of it, just all of it. Well, and this is why, you know, this actually came out of conversations with all these dudes. Oh with yeah. Anyone who would admit to cheating, it was because of the, it, it, it was this narcissistic, mm-hmm like rush of excitement and like, yeah. And all of them were like, I love my wife. Oh, I love my wife. I would never want to hurt her. Like I, you know, I can't live without her, mm, but I'm but entitled also, to cheat on her but and I'm I don't ent- have to care about her feelings as long right. as I get what I want. And that's, that's right. Narcissism. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, and I think that social media helps, helps with this, right? It's just, oh, like, yeah, it's a, totally. It, it's like, here's a platform mm-hmm. <laughs> on which you can, yeah. And there's research on this too, that that's, you know, that's what a major way people are finding ways to cheat is access, right? Yes, and, absolutely. And right. Again, being able to love bomb and use, you know, and so that's again, in the book, I look for like, Hey, this is how somebody might be love bombing you on social media. Here's these red flags. And a lot of your listeners are probably very seasoned and love bombing and knowing what it is. But again, there's mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. out there who don't know when they're being love bombed. Yeah. Well, so how does that show, how does love bombing show up on social media? You know, again, you're getting a message from someone you don't know, which is, I think, always a little sus, as my kids would say, suspects, especially. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and, you know, again, it's really overly complimentary and flattering. And, you know, love bombing in general is like they don't really know you well, but they know they want to spend the rest of their lives with you or you're so gorgeous. Or just if there's just an extreme amount of flattery, 
it might feel good to be flattered, but I think it's red flag number one. Mm -hmm. And then if you're talking with somebody online for a while, for example, you might start to get these little cute clues that, you know, um, there might be some possessiveness, like they don't really want you to hang out with your friends or they want to spend all their time with you, or Mm -hmm. they may get a little bit annoyed if you're like, Hey, I have to go. I have to make a call with someone else. And, Oh, you don't Mm -hmm. want to stay on with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So you may be Mm -hmm. able to get like these little clues, um, right. You know, like anyone sliding into your DMS that you mm -hmm. don't know, or that like is a friend of a friend, like you'll see this really often, right? You're like commenting mm-hmm. on somebody's post and like a friend is also commenting and then they slide into your DMs, right? And then they mm-hmm. want to, they want to know more about you. You seemed really interesting, right? Yes. And then it, and then it like escalates. Yes. And not saying that all those people are narcissists, but just keep your guard up, you know, mm-hmm. just get to know people. Um, you know, also how much are people putting out there? I have a case study in my book, which I've heard this actual type of story from many different women about um, meeting somebody and having a real relationship with them and then finding out they have a family. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. Um, like some people meet these guys on Facebook and they don't have a lot on their profile. And so in the story that I have, the woman found out her man um, had another family and another life because she tagged him on Facebook in a picture when they were out on a weekend getaway together and he flipped out. And was like, don't ever tag me again. Like he didn't, you know. And so it's like these different ways that you can sort of also figure out, you know. Now with the internet, you can also be a sleuth yourself and Google people and yeah, find out ways to kind of make sure that they are who they say they are. And also, like, dude, there are tag settings. Like you can (laughs) you Mm -hmm. can disable that yourself. But also, like, if it's disabled, why? Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Okay. So let's talk about our kids. How, how is this changing our children? I will, I mean, I will say as having a teenager, I have seen this. I mean, it is, it's, it's terrifying what it's doing to them. It is. And we have a lot of evidence again, that social media at least is a part or plays a role in the growing mental health crisis we're seeing with teens, which is making news everywhere. Teens are more depressed, anxious, suicidal than they ever were before. And this started actually before the pandemic. So we can't blame it all on the isolation of the pandemic, but the pandemic definitely made it worse. No, but what, you know, I will say that like during the pandemic, social media was their only social connection. And so that actually, you know, at a time when maybe we would have been like, "Uh uh-uh, we're cutting this off. It was like, fuck. The lifeline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, I try to say in the book, like, I don't want to say, first of all, it's unrealistic for me to be like, everybody deactivate your social media accounts. That's not going to happen. No. And so again, the book is more like being mindful about it and just being aware. Um, And so it's not like necessarily telling you to get off of it altogether. So I think there are good parts of it as well. So I don't want to say it's all bad. Mm -hmm. I do think the bad outweighs the good in a lot of situations, but I believe you know, what you said is like, yeah, there's some good parts about it. And there are some things that you'll see, like some TikTokers are destigmatizing mental health, for example. So it's sort of about how you use it and the content you consume and being very boundaried about it, right? Mm -hmm. And not making it. But again, with teens, what we worry about too is the addictive component of it. And they're also, and, you know, young, you know, preteens, for example, too, I think you have to be 13 to use social media, but their brains are still developing. They're figuring out their identity and then they're being bombarded with all of this, but they're also being bombarded with 
constant information, which is bad for adult brains, but really bad for teen brains. They can't process all of it. So mm-hmm. it's just coming at them, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, they have to process it, but we're really seeing again, a huge crisis with the, the body dysmorphia and, yeah. um, and then stuff like kids on Instagram seeing, uh, you know, themselves being left out of a party. It's really horrible. And I also have a chapter on cyber bullies, which mm-hmm. to me, the cyber bully part and cyber stalkers was one of the scariest chapters to write because the cyber bullies actually really have not only correlations with narcissism, but sadism. So like really mm-hmm. kind of people with sadistic tendencies, yeah, you know, like to go online and torture people. And we have the most heartbreaking stories of young people, you know, people as young as 12 are committing suicide. And a mm-hmm. lot of it is because yep. of like being bullied online. It's such a problem. Yeah. And so I really think we need to put more resources and attention into figuring this out with our kids, you know, and there actually is a study in my book. Again, this terrified me. There was a British study in the UK that asked parents of kids from like seven to 13, what they wanted to be when they grow up. And the vast majority chose influencer or YouTuber. Those were two separate categories. And then it was like, right. Dr. Veterinarian after that. And then the motivations, they asked them, what are your motivations for wanting this? And they said, fame and money. So now this is what we're te- telling people subconsciously even or blatantly that your value and worth is if you're like a YouTuber with lots of followers and you know that makes you really important and fame and money are the most important things. So as a culture, society, be- I think because of social media, we're really deviating from these values that matter most and like real connection based on you know authenticity instead of all of this false narratives and like, look at me and my BMW kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's so, it's so tragic. My son was uh, the victim of some cyber, pretty, pretty horrific cyberbullying oh. during the pandemic. So, and it was like, oh. I mean, it was, uh, it was so awful and it was terrifying because it did have this, he, he spiraled into a very dark place and it was, a te- it was an absolutely terrifying time. And especially because it was in the pandemic, like, <laughs> Yeah. It was like, it was all bad. I mean, hearing, even hearing this stuff every time is a knife to my heart. It's just so devastating to me Mm -hmm. and the consequences of it long-term are so devastating. And I say this as a person who was bullied in junior high school without social media. One of the things I'm so concerned about is that I was bullied without it. It would have been so much worse if social media was there. So I am such an advocate of anti-bullying culture and, and, you know, trying to limit and restrict social media, which is hard for parents because they don't want their kids to be left out. There's so much to navigate, but Mm -hmm. I'm super, super concerned about, especially the cyber bullying and um, developing brains and the body dysmorphia. And it's a huge problem. It really is. Uh, A guy that I, that I had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, his name is Adam Dodge and he um, runs an organization called NTAB and it is all about um, cyber stalking and like, you know, putting, you know, how, how tech is being used as an abuse tool essentially. And like how to avoid that. And we were talking about bullying and he said, you know, when, when we were in high school or junior high, like we were, we could be bullied at school, but then we went home. Right. And we closed the door and we were safe. Yeah. And the bullying may have been horrible and it may have been difficult, but it was, at least it was contained to these like, you know, six to eight hours a day. Right. Right. But with the internet, it's 24 seven. There's no Scott. There's no stopping. 
they could pray and call you on your landline, right? Or, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah, right. re- it's really not the incessant and the pile-ons that can happen online. Not just, mm-hmm. you know, with kids or pile-ons happen and yes. mobs come out for you on social media. And it's really bad yeah. for people's mental health. And because you can't see people or interact with them through the screen in an authentic way, it dehumanizes them again, which lowers our empathy, which again, that's kind of making us more narcissistic in a way, you know, so you can connect all of this to narcissism by like, Hey, this tech is lowering our empathy to the point where we're not seeing other people on the screen as real, uh, the other side of the screen as real human beings. Right. And that's such a huge thing, right? Is that I think that that so much of social media has, has distills things into black and white, right? Right. People are bad or they're good. And cancel culture is all about this, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they've done one bad thing and now they are bad. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. And they're done. Right. Whereas if we were actually in dialogue and conversation with this person, not through a screen, not through, you know, uh, whatever, just, you know, typing things, if we were actually in dialogue, it would open up Mm -hmm. our channels of empathy. Yeah. But this is just sort of like systematically closing them down. Yeah. And empathy is, you know, you need to see or hear someone. I, I also interviewed a woman for my book about, um, she wrote a book about empathy and technology. I think it was called The Future of Feeling mm-hmm. by Caitlin Phillips. And she found a cool study that I also used in my book about auditory empathy. Mm-hmm. And that was like, if you're hearing people, oftentimes it, you have more empathy even than seeing and hearing them. And she was saying like, that's why podcasts, so I thought this would be interesting for you. Oh yeah, That's why podcasts are so good because you're listening and you're reflecting, but you can't respond. So it's like, you're kind of, and that aspect also makes you more empathetic. And yes. you know, in my line of work, yes. when I work with I was, couples, I was going to say this is mirroring. an imago. This yes, is an imago thing, right, right. there. <laughs> so we're mirroring. You have to listen. You have and, you know, to. And then right. auditory is so important for empathy. And so a lot of times with social media, we're not necessarily um, we're we're not necessarily getting that auditory either. You know, again, it's just the screen with no voice, no no face some of the time. So it's, it's really important. I think that we, we start recognizing when this is happening. And again, like you said earlier on, you checked yourself. I think we can all check ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I, okay. Like I, I'm getting a little too obsessed here with validation. Like I'm going to pull back a little. So I think that's part of our work, you know, as responsible digital citizens. Yes. And so would you would say this is sort of you know, your, your final chapter is using social media mindfully. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, protect yourself, your peace, (laughs) um, and being an empathetic digital citizen. So is that sort of what we're taught, what you're, is that sort of the, is the mindfulness, the checking ourselves, the. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really being able to check in with our feelings and what we're feeling in our body when we're reacting to something on social media. And maybe that's a clue that we need breaks, or maybe we need to mute a lot of people if we don't want to unfriend them. But it's like, if you're going to stay on social media, like how can you curate it to a way that makes it a positive experience for you? Yeah. You know, with children explaining to them, you can have conversations with them from a very young age about what it means to be a good digital citizen. In fact, at the cyberbullies chapter, I have a little piece where it's like what to do if your child is the cyberbully. So I think we can empower ourselves a lot, you know, to, again, not just within ourselves, but to have constant conversations with our children about empathy and being, I mean, we're in my house, we're constantly talking about empathy. Um, We're constantly talking about 
um, what is, what would that be like for another person, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, we're talking about responsible online behavior. My kids play Roblox. And so it's not like I do all this restriction, but we have open conversations about online safety. And, you know, my kids will come to me and they'll say, Hey mom, someone, you know, they learned a curse word and they'll tell me, well, that's an opening for a conversation to be like, yeah, this is what this means. Don't ever say that at school. You know, yeah, right. so I think like there's ways you can use this as great conversations and being connected and, you know, having your kids just, you know, I'll, I'll never be mad at you. You can come to me and tell me anything that happens on social media. I'll protect you. I'll help protect you. We'll go to the right people, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. So mm-hmm. I think there's, there's things we can do to stay online and protect our peace. Um, but we also should know that when it's time to go, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, oh, we could talk about this for, for days. Um, but your book <laughs> yes. is coming out on the 31st. Yes. Yes. The Facebook narcissist it's, it'll be available on Amazon, on your website, everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Barnes All- and Noble, Apple books, audio book coming out every, everything. Okay, good. So on all the links for that will be in the show notes. Um, highly recommend you guys because this is, it's not going anywhere. Social media is not going anywhere. And this is kind of only getting worse, right? It, it, we have seen it escalate over the last yeah. many years. Yeah. And so and as you are. said, big tech and Zuckerberg, they're not protecting us. So we got to figure out like how we're going to protect ourselves and our kids from all the negative effects we're seeing from it. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Lena, where can people find you and your work? I am uh, lenagerholly.com is my website. Um, I'm not super active on social media. <laughs> Big surprise. One of my yeah. good friends manages an author page for me that's not posted on very much on Facebook, but it's just Lena Durholly author. But social sometimes I'll order an article, you know. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at therapy with Lena again, minimally. So. <laughs> So yes, not, not great for an author who's trying to, you know, publicize my book, but it's, yeah, but But I, yeah, that's where you can find me, but just read the books. That's the most important part. And guys come back. Lena and I are going to have another conversation coming up about her other book, um, about Chris Watts, which is a story. I think, I mean, for anyone, it's just an endlessly fascinating story. And it was so fascinating enough that you decided to do full research about it and write a book about it. Yeah. Probably the most dark and baffling and scary case that I've ever heard about in my lifetime. And it really, you know, asked the question, how well do you really know someone, which I think is terrifying is, do you ever really know who you're sleeping next to? And I think to be continued with that. Ugh. All right. <laughs> such a scary thought. Yeah. All right. We will be continued. Thank you so much, Lena. It's such a pleasure to talk to you about all this stuff. It's just a wealth of information and it's awesome. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you, Kate. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.